nature of our minds is clear, it's lucid, it's unobstructed. The nature of the mind is simply to know what's arising. The nature of the mind is awareness. But somehow we don't recognize this simplicity, the empty, open nature of awareness itself. We find that we get distracted, we get seduced, we get caught up in a whole variety of ways through some very long-established habit patterns or tendencies, habits of thought, habits of feeling, that catch us again and again. And often these patterns or these habits are so familiar to us There's so much a part of who we take ourselves to be that they remain invisible. It's as if we've become so identified with them that we really don't even see them. And it's for this reason that we need to bring a very focused and clear and attentive mindfulness to the working of our own minds, so that we really can begin to see the forces, the tendencies, the conditioned habits that are at play. This is not an easy task. Buddha gave an image of how difficult it is. He said that it would be easier to conquer a thousand enemies in battle single-handedly and to do that a thousand different times, that that would be easier than to train the mind, to awaken the mind. So if you're having some difficulties, <laughs> it's not that it's a mistake or that you're doing anything wrong. This is a very profound and difficult task. What the Buddha saw and what we can see for ourselves very clearly in our practice is that the underlying causes of happiness and of suffering in our own lives and in the world are forces within the mind. You know, very often we look out or about in the world and we see the suffering that exists. Suffering of injustice, of exploitation, of violence. It's a long list. The underlying causes of this suffering are the forces of greed, are the forces of fear, are the forces of hatred. And the very essential discovery and recognition is that these habits, these forces of mind, are not only out there. 
there within ourselves. One of the deepest and most strongly conditioned energies or patterns in the mind and one which together with ignorance is at the very root of our endless cycling through samsara is the tendency or the habit or the conditioning of desire So we need to understand this very carefully, very exactly. The word desire in English has quite a few different meanings. So we need to define precisely which desire we're talking about. So one meaning of desire is that of greed. One meaning of desire is that of motivation. And we have a desire to do something. We're motivated to do something that might be unwholesome. It might be very wholesome and skillful. So this meaning of desire is different than greed. There's also the desire which means or entails the satisfying of just basic human needs. You know, food and water and shelter. And so this again is not the force of greed. In talking about desire this evening, talking about that quality in the mind which is craving, which leads to clinging, which leads to grasping. In the often typical uh, translation of Pali. It's kind of like Victorian English translation. One way they translated this Pali word, which is tanha, the fever of unsatisfied longing. That kind of sounds like a Victorian romance. (laughs) But it actually touches something. Maybe we're all characters in this great novel. (laughs) This is the kind of desire I'm talking about. That of greed, that of craving, of unsatisfied longing, of thirsting, that quality in the mind. The Buddha spoke of three kinds of desire three kinds of craving. One we're quite familiar with, and that's the craving for sense pleasures. And that's the kind of desire that's very operative in the world. Second kind of desire he mentioned is the desire for rebirth, craving for rebirth. And often this is in the context of desire for rebirth in the heavenly realms. And the third kind of desire the Buddha talked about, third kind of craving, is desire for not being reborn. Sometimes when people hear this, these three kinds of desire, 
The first we can usually relate to quite easily. We understand it. But sometimes the second two seem a little philosophical or abstract. Or, oh, I don't really have this strong craving for rebirth in the heaven realms. And I don't think much about being not reborn. But as is often the case, at least in my experience, with the teachings of the Buddha, very often something which at first glance does not seem so applicable to my life, when we examine it a little more deeply, or investigate it a little more deeply, it's actually pointing to something very profound. This desire for rebirth or not to be reborn, desire either way, reflects some very basic assumptions about our lives, about how we choose to live. It's pointing to something very deep in us. On the one hand, it points to a belief or an assumption or an idea of ongoing life. Do we have that worldview? That something, some aspect of ourselves lives forever? The Buddha called this the eternalist view. Or do we have the idea, are we living our lives with the assumption that at death it's all over? Buddha called that the annihilationist view. And all of us, in one way or another, whether it's articulated clearly or not, we're living our lives with one assumption or the other. Either we think it's going to go on, or we think it's going to end. And this belief, even if we're not clearly conscious of it, very much conditions the choices we make. What the Buddha pointed out is the big problem in both of these beliefs. We all have one or the other, and yet there's an inherent difficulty in both. Because all three of these kinds of desires, desire for sense pleasures, desire for rebirth in the heavenly realms, desire for no rebirth, all are constellated around the idea of someone being there. All are constellated around the idea of self. And whether we're conscious of it or not, to the degree that we're caught in these desires, we have these belief systems, we are operating out of illusion. We can begin to explore very pragmatically this force of desire in our lives when we look at our closest attachments. I think it turned down a little. When we look at the attachments, the closest attachments in our lives, that's when we can see desire at work. For example, 
we can look at the attachment we have to our bodies. Now, most of us are pretty identified with our body. We don't like it when our body gets sick, you know, as it's aging, as it gets older in the face of death. Are we really free in that? Are we free of attachment? Or are we holding on in some way or other? We can see desire operate very clearly, and this is something we all know very well. We can see desire operate in our attachments to people, certain people in our lives. We can see desire operate in terms of certain things that we want. It's interesting to begin to notice carefully the range of intensity of desire, because there's a very broad spectrum. Sometimes we experience the desire of an overwhelming passion, an obsessive passion, which consumes our lives. People, people get caught up in this, and a lot of great literature is precisely about this kind of desire. <laughs> it's true. I mean, some very great books you know, have been written about this all-consuming passion that can take over and the often destructive consequences of it. Desire can be felt in the form of whatever particular addictive cravings we have. You know, we all have some about something. We can see desire at work in recurring fantasies. You know, we're just either sitting on retreat or in our lives, just the play of fantasies over and over again. That's an expression of desire. Or even in a very minor way, something that happens countless times during the day, we can see desire in just the passing thought of wanting something. Now, it's not big, it's not consuming. It's just a thought of wanting arises in the mind, and there's desire in that. On retreat, the field of desire narrows considerably. I mean, in the world outside, we have great scope for the fulfillment of all these things. Here, it's a little more limited. But it doesn't really stop the desire from arising. It just finds a little smaller, smaller domain. One of the places I've noticed it most embarrassingly when I've been on retreat is I can be doing walking meditation back and forth and very mindful and very connected and very clear. Then I notice the difference between that and how I walk when the lunch bell rings. You know, it's, it's very subtle. It's just that little, you know, that anticipation which is kind of pulling me along. What is that? It's just, it's the energy of wanting. 
You know, I mean, it's, it's interesting to see actually somatically how that, how that energy of wanting manifests. It is precisely this. You know, it's just <laughs> that energetic leaning forward. It's not restful. You know, it's pulling us out of balance. In this retreat environment, everything's very quiet. People are just sitting and walking. But the force of desire in the mind, often we go through periods of tremendous sexual fantasies. You know, where all of a sudden, oh, I have a nice hour to sit here. <laughs> Let's have a good time. <laughs> And we go through bouts of this, you know, and the mind gets really pulled in, it gets very seduced by it. Or even just getting lost or enjoying our own internal dramas. It doesn't even have to be particularly exciting, but there's some desire which pulls us again and again and again into whatever dramas we happen to be reliving. Sometimes we see desire, in this context, in a very subtle form. There's just that attitude or that energy of wanting diversion. Now, that's a kind of desire, too. You've probably noticed how amazingly difficult it is to walk past the bulletin board without looking at it. Yeah, it's just, oh, just in case a new notice is up. <laughs> What's important in all this is not that these shouldn't be happening or shouldn't be arising. What's important is that we want to take the opportunity of the retreat to really look at deeply what exactly is happening in our minds. <clears throat> How is this force of desire, which runs the whole gamut, you know, from consuming to very minor, how is it working in our minds, in our lives? How is it obscuring the natural clarity? the natural openness. We want to discover this for ourselves. It's not a question of just believing what somebody says or reading it in you know, the Buddhist texts. The whole point, the purpose of the retreat is to take this time and to investigate very carefully. This is a powerful energy. It's at the root of samsara. Can we really look at it? Can we understand it? In meditation practice, desire also comes, or slips in, in quite an obstructive way, in the form of expectation. And it's very insidious because sometimes expectation comes disguised as right effort. You know, and so we think, oh yeah, I'm just making right effort here. But really, it's 
effort masquerading, expectation masquerading as effort. That sense in the mind of wanting something to happen. This expectation can also take the form of comparing mind. You know, when we compare our practice in our minds with others, it gets into competitive sitting. You know, it's kind of like this race for enlightenment or this race for whatever, some experience. I got caught by this in one retreat I did. It was the, it was the first retreat I sat with Saida Upandita, and it was very intense, and a lot of my friends were sitting, and there was this sort of pressure. Of course, it was self-imposed, you know, of kind of getting to the finish line. And it was a tremendous obstacle, and I was making myself more and more tight and tense. I was always kind of comparing, okay, well, how am I doing relative to everybody else here? It was all just you know, projections in my own mind. But I had a great teaching from the flowers that were growing right out in the frontier. So I was doing some walking meditation. This was in the spring. Very much caught up in this, in this kind of expecting mind. It was really filled with desire, filled with wanting. And I noticed the flowers, and some of them had just begun to come out of the ground. They were just beginning to come out. And other flowers had grown a little taller, and the bud was formed. And some of the other flowers, the bud was formed and actually opened already. And I looked at those flowers, and I realized, you know, each one of these is going to blossom in its own time. Nobody's racing. (laughs) None of them are racing the other, or there's no... There's just the natural development, the natural progression for each one. And that was such a good lesson for me at that time, just to relax. I simply had to do my practice. And after that, it was surrendering to the Dhamma. Surrender. Let it all happen. Let it all unfold as it inevitably does. That was a very helpful very helpful lesson to see and understand. So sometimes desire in our practice is in the form of expectation of wanting something to happen. Sometimes desire comes in the form of trying to hold on to some state, which either we have or we had. You know, we had a great sitting, and we go into the next sitting with this desire for it to be back. Trying to recreate past experience is like dragging a corpse around. It's gone. It's over. It's finished. Dead. (laughs) Let it go. It's such a relief. We don't have to be recreating anything. We simply have to be settled back and open to what's presenting itself. So that's very simple. 
There's no pressure in that. There's no tension, there's no wanting. The desire of expectation always brings restlessness and discouragement. So we want to see this. This is one of the aspects of desire that we want to see very clearly for ourselves. Because when we're filled, when we're caught by expectation, in those moments we are no longer being mindful and no longer being attentive. We're no longer aware of simply what's there, so the mindfulness gets weaker. As the mindfulness gets weaker, the mind gets more agitated. It gets more restless. As we get more restless, we get more discouraged. And so it's just a spiral downward. Where does it all start? It started with that unnoticed desire of expectation. We need to see all this very clearly for ourselves. What happens is that we get seduced, we get entranced by various objects of desire, whether they're internal states, whether they're external states. And we, it's like we start walking in this enchanted forest. And we're in this dreamlike state where all we can think about where our whole reality is for the fulfillment of that wanting. It's all about whatever particular object it is. And we no longer see the very passing nature, the very impermanent nature, both of the wanting and of the object of wanting. A very, very easy example of this is in the well-experienced phenomenon of the Vipassana romance. You know, people come on retreat in silence, maybe barely know one another, and yet at some point or another, the mind has this tendency to just feel this attraction towards one of the other people here. And the level of projection that can go on is truly staggering. It's like our minds get I don't know a strong enough word. <laughs> they get captured, imprisoned, something, you know, by the thought of this person and kind of doing walking meditation and the person happens to walk by, you know, kind of sneak a glance and there's that kind of excitement and rush. And if you happen to be sitting next to them in the dining room or purposely go into the dining room to sit next to them, I mean, this whole drama is created. It has consumed a lot of airtime in this hall <laughs> in the last 20 years. So again, we just want to see 
instead of it's not that we it's not that we want to judge it or it's just so we understand this very powerful force of wanting Not only does desire hinder concentration and obscure the natural clarity of mind, the natural openness of mind, but it also, in the end, does not fulfill its promise of happiness. Now, why is it that we keep getting caught by desires? because it holds out this promise to to us. You do this, you get this, you have this, and you'll be happy. And there's that little voice of Mara in our minds, which is very insistent. Well, we go after these different sense pleasures because of the pleasant feelings that come. But as you know and will know with even greater clarity and depth, these pleasant feelings are very impermanent. So what happens? We're always going after another one, and another one, and another one, and another one. And this is how we've been living our lives. It's not just on retreat. We keep looking for happiness in the fulfillment of one kind of desire or another, It's endless. How many desires have we fulfilled in our lives? Countless. Of all kinds. You know, from the small little ones to quite big and dramatic ones. But there is no end. Because the pleasant feelings that come from them are very impermanent. So we feel them and they're gone, and then it leaves us wanting more. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't enjoy things. That's not the implication of all this. It doesn't mean that we should never act on our desires. What it does mean is that we should see very clearly, and with a very penetrating wisdom, the impermanent, transitory nature of it all. So we can really ask ourselves the question in our practice and in our lives, how much of our life do we want to invest in the fulfillment of these desires? And how big a part of our life do we want to spend in doing this? At one time, I was, I was on retreat, and I was sitting, and I was just going through this run of thoughts you know, that I was really getting into. I was, I was just enjoying. Now, I can't even remember what they were about, but... And at a certain point, I just... <laughs> just gave myself a talking to. <laughs> and I said, do you want to think, or do you want to be free? And it just kind of crystallized the choices you know, that I was making. It's not that thoughts stopped coming, but it weakened that sense of indulgence. Oh, yeah, just let me, let me go into this one for a little bit. 
when we see clearly what's happening, that really gives us the space of choice. If we don't see what's happening, then we're just acting out all the old habits of our conditioning. So desire for sense pleasures in all the ways, whether it's you know, the physical sense pleasures, whether it's the expectation in practice, whether it's diversion, whether it's great passion, whether it's addictions, whatever it is, desire for sense pleasures, one kind or another. This is the first kind of craving. The second kind of craving the Buddha talked about was craving for rebirth. particularly heavenly rebirth. The Buddha talked a lot about the heaven realms. You know, and he talked about it by way of delighting the mind and creating a sense of joy, creating a sense of happiness. And the descriptions are wonderful. When I first went to India and practiced with Manindraji, he would spend a lot of time talking about these deva realms. You know, and beings born with bodies of light and everything beautiful and they're born around age 16 or 17 just they appear spontaneously they're just ready to enjoy things (laughs) the description of these pleasure groves and heavenly musicians and it's like complete delight on every side there are even heavenly meditation halls you know, where we, in our bodies of light, can sit and practice. And it's said that Maitreya, the coming Buddha, is now residing in one of these heaven realms, Tusita realm, actually teaching the Dharma. In all of the Buddhist traditions, there are these descriptions of these realms from people who have experienced them in one way or another. Now, as Westerners, I think we tend to have some skepticism about it all. And it, it reminds me of a comment that Munindra used to make as he would be going on and on about these heaven realms and seeing looks of, if not disbelief, questioning you know, among the Westerners. He would go on very enthusiastic and excited. You don't have to believe this. You don't have to believe it. It's true, but you don't have to believe it. (laughs) And then he would proceed to go on. So on the one hand, sort of the talk or the thought or the reflection of the Deva realms really do create a brightness in the mind. and if we can open to the possibility of real delight. On the other hand, this kind of desire also is a trap. And it's like the bee buzzing around in the jar thinking, oh, maybe I'll buzz on up to the top for a while, the top of the jar, see what's doing up there. You know, it can go to the top, it can go to the bottom, it's still caught in the jar. With the desire for rebirth, or even heavenly rebirth, or heavenly pleasures, heavenly delights, 
Or if you don't so much connect with that possibility, you can think of it in terms of desire for heavenly states of mind, heavenly meditative experiences. You know, wanting that kind of experience. It's still being trapped in the jar. It's still being trapped in this cycle of birth and death. And that's why the Buddha talked about this as the second and very important kind of craving, of desire to see in ourselves. Are we after something? Are we after rebirth, whether it's next life or next sitting or tomorrow? Are we after a rebirth in some realm, in some happy realm? We need to see that, and that can very much condition how we practice. Are you practicing in order to have some experience? That's a kind of craving. It's a kind of desire. And what it's doing in a way that may not be noticed, is that it's strengthening the sense of self. It's strengthening that sense of I who wants something. And that's precisely what keeps us bound. In the same way, the third kind of desire for no rebirth does exactly the same thing. This is the annihilationist view the thinking that it's all over, or we want it to be all over. This also is predicated on the view of self. The idea that there's someone there not to be reborn. This matter is at the heart of suffering and freedom. So it's really important to begin to see how it's operating in our own minds, in our own experience. The great discovery in practice, really the great awakening, the great illumination, is that there is no one there to either be reborn or not to be reborn that the very notion of self, the very idea of self, the very concept of self, is an illusion. And it's only the ignorance of this, the fact that we don't see it, and the desires which keep coming out of this ignorance, that keeps us revolving. Now, in samsara, on this cycle of birth and death, and you can think of it over lifetimes, you can think of it over a single lifetime, you can think of it in a single sitting. There's a writer named Wei Wu Wei. He's actually an Englishman, lived in China, in Hong Kong. Very, very wonderful writer. About this whole notion of the desires coming out of the sense of self, coming out of that ignorance, whether it's desire for sense pleasure, desire for rebirth, desire for not rebirth, all of it, he said, is like a dog barking up a tree that isn't there. That's what we're doing. 
We're blocking up this tree of self and it's not there. So how can we use the time of the retreat, and particularly a retreat like this, where there's there's enough time to really go quite deeply into these matters? Now we can look with very great precision and exactitude in order to understand how desire in all of these manifestations, how this energy, how this force is working, is conditioning our lives, conditioning our suffering. Most importantly, the most important way of being with it is to be aware when it arises. Because mostly we're not. As I said, it's become so much a part of who we are, it's usually invisible to us. So as you're going through the day, you really want to keep an eye out, keep the awareness open, so that you see desire as it arises. Recognize the wanting mind. Whatever the wanting is for. You know, it's some fantasy, it's wanting diversion, it's wanting some meditative state, whatever. Really pay attention to those moments of the mind wanting, of desiring, of craving. Not with a sense of judgment. Not with a sense, oh, this is bad, I shouldn't be feeling this. Not at all. It's almost a sense of welcoming it because it's a chance to understand it. You know, this is a great laboratory for you. You can really look and see how is this working in my mind and in my life. Notice the many times a day that it arises. You're not going to have to wait long, you know. Just little things, just little moments of wanting. You hear a sound, and if you're really attentive, maybe you'll notice just that moment of wanting to turn to see what it is. Just that, something as simple as that. The head by itself doesn't turn. There's a whole process involved. What is that wanting? What is that desire? Can you see it? Notice all of these little moments, and sometimes there'll be big moments, which take you away from the simplicity of simply knowing. The nature of the mind is awareness. It's open, it's lucid, it's clear, it's unobstructed. There's great simplicity in that. It's desire which obscures that simplicity. So we want, to, we want to see for ourselves how it's happening. So that it's no longer theoretical. We actually, we grok it. Keep in mind that desire is not the problem. 
It's the identification with the desire. It's the being lost in the desire. It's not knowing that it's present. That's where the problem is. As you notice these desires arising in the mind, these moments of wanting, see if you can discern how the identification with that desire in a moment actually solidifies a sense of self. You can feel it. You can feel the contraction of energy. When we get identified with a wanting, the wanting itself is fine. When we get identified with it, in that moment you can feel it's like the contraction of self has been created. So this is very interesting, just to look, to see. So that's one way of really beginning to work with desire. Another way is by investigating and exploring the joy of renunciation. Now for some people, that phrase, I don't know if I'm using this word right, is an oxymoron. The joy of renunciation. <laughs> That can't be. Because many of us have been conditioned to think of renunciation as a great burden. You know, there's a great uh, line from St. Augustine where he's praying to God and he says, Dear Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. <laughs> right? And that's generally our spirit of uh, thinking about renunciation. Yeah, it's good for me, but not quite yet. Or else we do something, we actually have this act of renunciation, sort of like eating beets as a kid. You know, well, I don't really like it, but it'll be good for me. So very often that's our conditioned way of thinking about renunciation. But we can begin to see it in a completely different way. And it's in a way that really liberates our minds. And that is we begin to see that addiction is the burden and that letting go is the freedom. There's one or two examples of this. Just imagine, you know, you're sitting, not now of course, but before you came here, you're sitting watching TV and there are these endless commercials. Just imagine what it would be like if you wanted everything that was advertised. It would be a hell around. No, it would. You know, if everything that were advertised, oh, I want that, I want that, I want that, I want that. But fortunately, you know, we've been deconditioned with regard to the advertisements on TV to a large extent. You know, most of us mute them. <laughs> so we've learned it about TV, but we haven't really learned it about the commercials in our minds. You know, all the desires that come up, it's the same principle, though. To want everything you know, that, that presents itself, 
as an object of desire. I want this, I want this, I want that. There's a tremendous suffering in that addiction, and there's tremendous ease in being able to let them go. Renunciation is not the burden, it's the wanting that's the burden. So if we see this, if we have a taste of that, it actually reinforces our ability just to let things pass through. I had another experience of this in practice on retreat. I was sitting and things were going along quite well. You know, things were just rolling along smoothly. And I had this image that I was just on this highway, you know, the freeway, the Mass Pike. And I'd be going along, coasting, cruising along, and then there'd be this big billboard on the side of the road. Oh, amusement park, take this exit, whatever our particular amusement park is. And I could just see my mind, I was watching my mind, see this big billboard, oh, I go, go visit that. And it's like I would get off the exit, you know, and down the road and play a little while and whatever it was. And then I just have to come back and get back on the, get back on the freeway. Well, as I noticed this over time, I began to get a little better at actually seeing the billboard. I rec- oh yeah, that's a billboard. But still the tendency was quite strong. And I find myself still getting off the exit, but not actually going all the way down the road. I'd get off the exit, and I'd see it, and I'd get right back on. After going through this a number of times, my mind wised up a little bit. I saw the billboard, and I realized, I don't even have to get off the exit. Okay, there's this billboard. I'll do this, go here, enjoy this. I could just see that billboard and stay cruising on the highway. We can change our relationship to this proliferation of desire that arises in the mind. It's not that they're going to stop coming, but we don't have to buy in. We don't have to get off the exit each time. It comes through awareness. It comes through seeing. Look carefully at times when desire is present and when you're caught in it. Whatever it is, you know, it's a desire for something or lost in a fantasy, whatever. Really pay careful attention to the experience of being lost and then how it feels when we wake up, when we come out of it. Just notice the difference in your experience. And I think you'll notice that there is a sense of great relief. It's like being let out of the grip of something. Even if the desire was pleasant, even if there was a certain enjoyment to it, compared to the letting go, there's a tightness, there's a tension, there's a bondage. And you can see that clearly if you watch that transition moment. You're in something, you're in it, you're in it, and then in a certain moment, and it's just like being let out of the grip of wanting. So pay attention to that. 
So you really know for yourself from the inside, yeah, this, this desire, this wanting, this craving is suffering. And we don't have to keep buying into it. One of the great liberating insights around desire that comes from being on retreat with is not that much opportunity to fulfill a great many of them, is the insight, the understanding that desires do not have to be fulfilled to go away. And mostly in our lives, that's the assumption. We're filled with some strong desire for something. If I don't do it, if I don't get it, if I don't have it, it's going to be gnawing at me. You know, so I have to fulfill it in order to come to peace. One of the things that we see so clearly on retreat, just through the power of awareness, of being settled back, watching it all come and go, the desire is there, it's there, it's there, it's there, it's there, and then it's not there. That is a tremendous insight. We realize we don't have to do anything about them. We don't have to act on them. It gives us the space in our lives then to make some wise choices. There's one more little piece about desire want to mention. And this gets into sort of a more subtle level of understanding why it's such a strong force in our lives and why it's so difficult for us to get a handle on it. One of the things that we can begin to notice is that it's not actually the object or the experience that we have the desire for. It looks like that. On the surface, it seems like that. But really what the desire is for is for the pleasant feeling that we anticipate getting with that experience or that object. Do you see the difference? Because there's quite an amazing freedom which comes from understanding this distinction. Usually we think that what we want is the object. But really what we want is the pleasant feeling that we think is going to come with that experience. How is this freeing, to see, seeing this? And I've noticed this you know, as I've watched desire in my own mind and how I get caught again and again. And I've done this with little things. We don't, you know, we don't have to be talking about grand passions here. We can be talking just about the ordinary, commonplace movement of wanting in the mind. I find myself justifying the wanting mind by the thought, well, I'm not really attached to this cup of tea. 
You know, there's a wanting the cup of tea, and I think, I'm not really attached to it. And so then, I just go ahead and do it. Because I'm not really attached to it. Or I'm not really attached to looking at the bulletin board for the thousandth time. And I'm not. <laughs> and so, go ahead and do it. It's precisely because that statement is true that we miss what's underneath it. It is true. I'm not attached to that cup of tea. And I'm not attached to looking at the bulletin board. And I'm not attached to whatever particular thing it is. Because that's true, I'm missing, I'm overlooking the more subtle attachment to the pleasant feeling that I think will be there in that experience. And when I reflect on that, I see, yes, that's what's propelling the movement. I am attached. I am wanting that pleasant feeling. Seeing this difference, for me, has been very helpful because I begin to see accurately the pattern or the forces, the way the conditioning is playing itself out. And when I realize before doing something, yeah, it's not the object. I'm not attached particularly to that. But when I see, oh yeah, there's this wanting for the pleasant feeling. When I recognize that, along with that very often comes the understanding, that feeling is really, (laughs) there's not much there, you know. When my mind is really focused on what really is happening, I say, it's not worth the effort just for those few moments of pleasant feeling. And so there's a lot more freedom in the mind. Again, it's not that we never have the cup of tea or that we never do whatever it is. But can we do it from a place of discriminating wisdom? from really seeing what's going on, rather than from blindly acting out this very deep pattern. Vipassana means seeing clearly. And Krishnamurti expressed this very beautifully. He said, it's the truth which liberates, not our efforts to be free. That's what we're doing here. It's really investigating deeply enough so that we see how these forces of bondage are working in our minds, in our lives. I think the great gift and power and beauty of the retreat, especially this one, is that it gives you enough time to settle in, to concentrate the mind, and to look deeply. And to look deeply from a place of interest, of wanting to discover the mystery of all this. How we get so entangled, how we can become free in this. A 
learning about desire on retreat and seeing it clearly begins to free us in the face of desire in our lives outside. We know when to act on it, when to let go. The mind is clear. The mind is unobstructed. The mind is lucid. The mind is open. The mind is empty. Desire comes as a visitor. It's not in the nature of the mind itself. It comes as a visitor when conditions are there. When it comes, we want to see. We want to see deeply into it. You know, the other night, Michelle, or morning, Michelle mentioned how we don't want to practice too tightly and we don't want to practice too loosely. Just the Buddha gave that instruction to one of the monks, his name was Soma, who had been a musician. And he talked about how the strings have to be just right, have the music be beautiful. In the same way, our effort has to be just, not too tight, not too loose. And the Buddha closed this teaching to to Soma, the monk. He said, the gift of truth is the highest gift. And the taste of truth is the sweetest taste. And the joy of truth is the greatest joy. And this is what our practice is about. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.